Hey there! It's nice to have you with us. I'm Christina, and isn't today a beautiful day? The weather is just perfect for us to get together and sit for a spell. Maybe have some tea or lemonade, enjoying the company, and getting the chance to hear some remarkable stories from people just like you and me. I've got plenty of room here. Don't be a stranger. Settle on in and make yourself comfortable. Welcome to My Front Porch. I first met Jenna Martinez in 2015 at work. Jen, as I call her, was a professional colleague working for the same property management company. It didn't take long, however, for us to connect over not only our management style, but also our love of music. I found Jen to be completely authentic and funny. She has the gift of gab and storytelling, and so we became fast friends. I always marveled over why, based on her many musical experiences and obvious talents, that she had settled for property management. But we all have to make a living, I suppose. In recent years, I've had the opportunity to see Jen in action not only as a co-singer in our band The Misty Notes, but also as a backup singer with well-known national artist Mama Blue, and most recently as band manager for the up-and-coming band Dustin Monk and the Hustle. Jenna Martinez is a woman on the rise, perhaps not the go-getter with a plan, but as a woman open to all possibilities, following her own rhythm wherever she goes. This is how her story begins. So I guess we should start at the beginning. The story really does start early in the 1980s in Portsmouth, Virginia. To be honest, I don't recall too much about being born in Portsmouth, but I moved to Jacksonville when I was six years old in the late 80s and there were a lot of musical instruments in my house. There was a lot of music being played every day. I think one of my earliest childhood memories may have been that I believe they were showing thrillers somewhere like in the theater and my dad actually brought me to see it, which think about that when it came out, I was very, very young and he actually took me to see it, but that's my dad. He would do stuff like that. There were a lot of musical instruments in my home. Some of my earliest gifts were like plastic guitars, plastic drum sets. Disney had these cassette tapes that came with books. So those are my earliest memories is growing up on Disney movies and of course learning the songs in the Disney movies and then being gifted with a lot of music type gifts. I know that probably around like first or second grade, I started joining like children's choirs and it was nothing I think too grandiose and probably later into elementary school, I joined a group while my dad was stationed overseas. I'm also a military brat, so that's a big part of my story, is that for the first 12 years of my life, my dad was bopping around from duty station to duty station, with Jacksonville being probably the most significant one because after going overseas, we returned and Jacksonville's where I grew up. But I believe it was sometime in early 90s that my dad was stationed in Rota, Spain, and I joined like this dance group over at the youth center and we would do like USO fairs and I would have like this cowboy hat on with a big star in the middle and we would do some song and I still can't find out who sings it so if anybody knows let me know it's called Gone Daddy Gone or something like that and we would do like a line dance and a square dance with a hook to it and we would perform that at USO fairs followed by Too Legit by MC Hammer. So we would do that song and then too legit. That was the routine. So I was always 
performing, I didn't really view it as something that was abnormal or something that was an aspiration for a career. This is something that I did. I did children's choirs up until middle school. And then when we moved back to Jacksonville, I was a teenager and I was really into drama. I still translated that. I wasn't really performing as much, but I was still doing state competitions, things of that nature. So I was still performing and still on a theater stage, but not really inclined so much musically at that point. And when I was headed into the ninth grade, I thought that I wanted to be an actor. So I auditioned for Douglas Anderson and they called my mom and they were like, we do not want to say no, but we are not going to accept her on first audition and have her come back with a piece that wasn't so old. Like, I think I had like a, a piece from the 1600 I auditioned with and they were like, that's not what we're looking for. Um, she can read well. Can she come back, you know, with a more contemporary piece, you know, and I gave it some thought and I said to my mom, I don't think that's that important to me that I attend a performing arts high school, but I wasn't 100 about being an actor. I decided to go to Sandalwood and I was in drama club and it actually worked out really well for me where I was kind of a big fish in a smaller pond where I received awards, I did state competitions and performed really well, which as we know, had I gone to a performing arts school, I would have definitely had a little bit more competition for sure. And I think also in, at that time, there weren't many well-known actors or actresses that looked like me. So I didn't see myself really doing well in theater or Broadway. My mind was not there. I wasn't really thinking that because I'm also a person that's not really into taking too many risks. So the logical side of me was like, you want to become a drama teacher? And the answer to that was actually no. In high school, I still continued to perform. You know, you figure out who you want to be. I definitely discovered the Seattle Sound and so many of those bands, and I cut my teeth on, on a lot of those bands, Nirvana being the first one. Soundgarden is another one that people that know me well know how much I love Soundgarden. And of course, I think like the turning point for me was the first time I had heard Holes Live Through This from front to back. As somebody that always loves music, and always into it. I had never had listened to a record where it impacts me in that manner, where I actually wanted to be serious about playing an instrument. I wasn't just listening to it. I was internalizing it and going, oh, this is a different strong structure that I have never heard. The guitar pattern, that's probably not even the right word, but the guitar tones I was intrigued by. I was also really intrigued by their rhythm section. Like that drummer hits so hard and it sounded really precise. And it's just something that I had never heard before. And Patty Shemmel still to this day, I believe is probably one of the most underrated drummers of all time. Like she is damn amazing. And Kristen Fab was a really good bass player. And then I'd read articles on the band and they're all, and she had by since, she had passed away by the time that record came out, but all her bandmates were praising her and how wonderful she was. So that really intrigued me to want to play bass because I'm like, oh, this must be where it's at. My dad gifted me with a guitar and I wasn't really interested in it. I'm like, everybody plays a guitar. Didn't appeal to me. I was more of a rhythm person. So I eventually got to the point 
where I was playing bass. It took a minute, but I finally got there. And a big part of that is I had a sister who was three years younger than I was. So, you know, as being the oldest, your siblings kind of watch your moves and they watch what you're doing. And one of the things I noticed is my record collection grew, so was hers, is my style of clothing changed, so was hers. Clothes were missing from my closet. <laughs> And one thing that I did notice is that she was wearing my clothes a little bit better than I was. She was playing these instruments way better than I was. Like she was actually sitting in her room and really studying it and studying the pedals and the mechanics of guitars, things, the technical stuff that just evaded me. I was more interested in songwriting and song structure and of course the history of music, but I did notice that she was picking up on stuff and she was learning to play these songs that were really intricate and really neat and really was nothing to find in my home, her playing guitar and me singing along with her. She was also pretty profound and pretty direct about things because she'd be like, well, you don't have much range, but I think we move it to this key, this key will be good. So she, didn't, she definitely did not fluff me up <laughs> in any way. So we would jam here and there. She actually joined bands when she was in high school. Um, I was a little bit older than her, so she was still in high school at the time that I graduated. Part of my life is a lot of series of near misses, and music is probably definitely one of them, because in high school people would talk about starting a band and being like, I remember that performance you did in middle school. Do you want to join our band? And like there'd be conversations in English class, but we would never make it to a practice, and people would get actually irritated with me because we'd talk about it, and I'd have a whole list of things that we were supposed to do. Because at that point, I think by 16, I had already read one edition of This Business of Music or one of those books and running your rock band by like 14. Just because I was like, well, th this interests me. If I'm gonna do this, let me read up on it. I'm a nerd, I love to read. So back then you didn't have the internet, you weren't really Googling anything, you were reading a book. So I was going to that bookstore in Regency and buying books on music and the business of music. Not so much that I wanted to work in the business of music, I just wanted to learn about it. So yeah, people would get really flustered with me because they'd want to start a band and I'd be like, so I read in this book that we have to do this, this, and this. And they were like, oh God, <laughs> that was irritating to some people. So they would X me out for being too bossy or probably being too direct. So by the time I graduated high school, I loved music. Music was the thing that I loved the most. I'd learned about a lot of different styles of music at that point. Right around the time I graduated high school, the music that I was listening to a lot was definitely rock into, there was kind of like this dawn in the late 90s of really heavy metal, of course. The Ozfest, kind of stuff that was going on at that time. I was a huge Cole Chamber fan, which is really funny now, because their songs, uh, the bass is a very integral part of it, but their songs were really simple and simplistic, and it would take probably, I'm gonna say I was in my early 30s before I ever saw them live, and I wasn't disappointed. I drove five hours to relive my childhood, and I had this big, scary, like, Cole Chamber poster on my wall senior year. And I remember I had a, a cousin who had a very snooty girlfriend who it would freak her out. So I kept it there. I was definitely into some heavier stuff. Like I, I enjoyed them. I enjoyed Marilyn Manson's earlier records too. I thought they were a lot of fun as well. 
I never became, at, when I was young, a really proficient bass player. I think I lacked patience. And I thought the end goal was eventually to play bass in a heavier band with original music, but at the same time getting an education. So by the time I graduated high school, I wanted to go to the University of Florida. I had done some stuff doing the morning announcements in high school and was in TV production. I was really heavy into that, along with simultaneously with the drama club. And it was suggested by my teachers, they were like, you write essays really well. I had had some articles published here and there in some local magazines, Prax, which was like a subsidiary of Folio Weekly that didn't last long, that my mom would have to drive me to pick up my CDs and that's how they paid me because they didn't want me to fill out paperwork or whatever. So they're like, we'll pay you in free CDs and you'll get releases before they ever came out. And one of them was like the cold record right after they had gotten kind of blown out of Jacksonville. Like, and I remember I had a whole punch on the barcode so I couldn't resell it. So I thought that was neat. I was very happy with that. I had done a lot of writing at that point and that had attributed to me to be my, okay, that's my gift is writing, not necessarily being a great singer, because I definitely was not that, <laughs> or being a great bass player or a great musician. I was a decent actor, I will say that, but that I could write, you know, that I solidified, okay, you can write, that's what you can do well. I did very well in creative writing in high school, and it was encouraged by that teacher who did TV production as well. He's like, there's things going on here and there where they're looking for junior reporters. Have you thought about broadcasting? So I was like, you know, I, I did watch a lot of news at that time. I was very interested in being in front of a camera maybe. So it's like merging that creative with also liking to read and investigate things. So entering college, that was the goal, was to be not a drama teacher, not a full-time musician, but a television reporter. And I was hoping that maybe I could be a VJ. Like for MTV, that was like the kiss job to have in the early 2000s when I went to college. And when I got to Gainesville, I wasn't able to get into UF, but I went to Santa Fe and I didn't really make friends right away. I really did not absorb myself too much into the school life. And it's funny because I went there and there were other people I went to high school with that I would see them at home from break and they're like, oh, I love it. I made lots of friends. I really didn't. I hung out with the guys that played guitar and they would borrow my amp and stuff, but I never really joined a sorority or got a good gang of girlfriends. My best friend from high school, Tennille Keys, she's Tennille Rockin now, lived on the other side of town and she had made a bunch of friends and had a great experience. And I kind of was like, I'm gonna go home. So after about a year, I decided to come home. And my parents were like, all right, you gotta, you gotta make your mind about what you wanna do. I did not grow up in a sticker for participating house. <laughs> so my mother and my stepfather, who was also a musician, they're like, you gotta figure out what you wanna do. I had my job that I had for years working at Publix, Store 320, which is still around. I just transferred back to Jacksonville. It was like, I'm gonna get a degree in multimedia, which is still broadcasting. And we're gonna go from there. In 2004, that's kind of what I like to call the precipice and kind of the turning point of my life because a lot of the things that I do today, a lot of the things that are in motion today really started in 2004 when I got into the multimedia program. And what was cool about it is my first college experience other than guitar class, I didn't meet too many people that were like me outside of guitar class. Like even poetry class, like I was shunned because I almost wasn't weird enough for poetry class. 
I wasn't ethereal enough for poetry class, but in guitar class, I would meet like-minded people and that was a lot of fun. But when I came back to Jacksonville and I entered the multimedia program, I met like-minded folks who, yes, they wanted to get an education and loved arts, but they also liked the dark stuff, the books I was reading, the movies I was into at the time. And you met a lot of people that loved music. In that, I can't remember what class it was, we were doing a project where I met my dear friend Roland, Roland Worley, who I'm still friends with to this day. I met Nikki, who ended up being my roommate at some point. But I also meet this girl who we had an end of semester project or some, right before we were supposed to graduate, we had one of those big projects. And there were two options. Team A was doing something on animals, which I was like, okay, cool, I love animals. But team B was doing a music video. And I was like, you know what? I'm gonna do the music video. And she's like, yeah, is this band called Opiate? And I, I don't mean to imitate her in a rude kind of way, but it's just so nonchalant. She's like, this band called Opiate, I made friends with the guitar player. I wanna do a music video for them. All right, sounds like a plan. You know, I just, I didn't know that was gonna change my life. <laughs> I did not know that. So she's like, we're gonna be banned at the pub on Friday or Thursday or whatever. Okay, and discuss. And I was like, okay, we're gonna discuss the treatment and have storyboards. And I meet them and I connected right away with their singer, Chris Bolin, Mike Ireland, their guitar player, and Jason Griswold. The three of them were there and they were just a great bunch of guys. They were really sweet. We talked about our influences. The band was really influenced by some darker stuff at the time. A Perfect Circle, I was really into A Perfect Circle. Tool, and their logo was very Tool-esque. Opiate, as we know, is a Tool song, so we were bonding over that. And even though other people in the group that was working on this music video were into music and loved it, I don't think they had the connection with the influences that I had with the band. So there was definitely like an instant bond and they kind of became like my big brothers and we're just working on this project. I really did not know that that night at the pub on Hodges or wherever it is, I think it's Hodges, that that night over a couple cocktails, that that was going to set in motion a path for me. So they were even like, come to our practice. You have to understand our music. And I was like, oh, whatever. So I just show up and I don't think anything of it still. You know, I'm like, oh, I'm gonna go see this band practice. And I think they practiced in the back of a cellular wireless off a beach or something like that. And it was your typical like practice space. And I really dug it. Like I, I really dug their music. So I started to become like kind of more invested in the project and making sure it was a good product. So then it started to snowball where somehow my classmate worked at the news station, the one that was directing this or producing this, like I was the director and she was the producer, Robeson classmates and I get to meet them all and I become friends with all of them as well. And she introduced me to somebody, and if you know me well, you know this story. It was in an opiate gig at the Imperial back in the day to Kim Rateus, who anybody that knows me knows that her and I have had a long history together. There are very few times where you have a picture of the time you meet somebody that impacts your life, but I have a picture of that moment. My hair's all big, and she came back from some sort of like magazine party that night, so I thought she was very glamorous. And we just bonded. I think my first words were her, oh, nice to meet you. I'm working on this music video with our mutual friend. And I think I said something crazy to her, like, are you Puerto Rican too? And she's like, oh my gosh, nobody ever thinks 
I'm Puerto Rican. So we bonded over the fact that nobody ever thinks I'm Puerto Rican and that nobody ever thinks she's Puerto Rican. They always think we're something else. So we just had an instant bond that way and the music was darker and different and you know, I didn't know that she even sang at the time, but she worked at the news station. She had a really important position. I believe it was like assignment editor or something. So we had kind of just, we all kept in touch this circle of people. So it starts to grow and grow and grow. And she actually signs on to help with, we decide we want to premiere this video. So she does all the publicity for it and gets the news station over. So this starts to grow. So we premiered this video sometime in May of 2004 at the Seawalk Hotel, back when it was the Seawalk Hotel. It is a VIP party, and I believe somebody important from MTV may have been there. I can't remember, but there was a lot going on. Like, we had food cater, my mom came, and my sister came, and that was the first time, like, I remember hearing my sister goes, wow, this is a big deal. I'm so proud of you. I didn't grow up in a house, like I said, that you get a sticker for participating. So to have my family there and to have them enjoy what I was doing and see this music video for a song called Coma. The song is still near and dear to me, actually, eventually. I got the words to that song tattooed on around my ankle because I, I was like, this really was life-changing. So after this video is done, it's premiered. We all still continue to kind of work together, see what projects we can kind of do. And we all keep in touch. In the summer of 2004, it was a fun time. It was like a girl's summer. And I was roommates with one of the girls and we're hanging out, we're meeting. And Kim comes to a, with this great idea that she had where she was hosting a couple of television shows she had done a lot of work on camera and rightfully so you know she had definitely had the background for it she's like I'm producing this show or I want to create a show based on Latin living or the Latin lifestyle and I was like okay I'm game for it and I think to be honest my role in the beginning and the creation of it was meant to be small like she was the star, she was the producer, and it was someone else that was really involved to be her partner. Kim and I really gelled at that time over what to do and how to move forward, how to plan this together. And I learned a lot during that time. I had never been involved in something like that. So we're, we're working on this. This was kind of like her baby, but as time rolls by, people that are involved start to fall off because it was work. It's a lot of work. Chris Bolin, who was the lead singer of Opiate, he actually designed the artwork, the logo. He did that for us. So we're still, you know, working intrinsically with our friends around that time. Opiate is still going. Somehow I think they broke up or something happened, but we still keep in contact. So I'm doing this television show, getting it ready to air, helping with the filming and, but I'm still in contact with the band. I'm still in contact with Mike and with Chris and with Jason about what's going on with them. And they had kind of reached a wall, I think in their career where the band decides to break up after playing showcases, doing some things and they decide to regroup and do something different. And they asked someone else that I knew to actually manage them. But she comes to me and says, do you want to maybe assist me? Or I know you know a lot about music in the business. And I was like, okay, sure. So I'm still doing this television show, but me being the busybody that I am, you know, I'm still working my day job as executive assistant. So I'm doing that. I'm working with this band and I don't really know too much about managing a rock band but I just go off my instincts and somehow the person that they originally asked to sign up for to help them she just goes away and I guess loses interest but I'm still around 
and they were like, would you manage us full time? I'm like, sure, I'll try it. And it really was a matter of my friends taking a chance on me, needing the assistance and me just cutting my teeth. So I started managing them. Chris was a really great visual artist. So he's a great graphic designer. So they're doing a new website, doing a lot of really cool things. And they switch a couple band members and they start to write these really tight, great songs. So I'm managing this band, doing this television show, the television show premieres. And I still to this day, I think, holy cow, like to see me on a television screen. We did the premiere party at my house. My parents hosted it and it was really neat to see. I remember my grandma just looking at me, you know, I think my first interview was on salsa dancing or something. That's another thing. I wound up on camera on accident. I think it's, we don't have anybody to film this interview. Will you do it? And I'm like, okay, fine. I have a degree in broadcasting, right? I mean, I end up tripping over a table, like the, the blooper reel of it is kind of funny. And anybody that knows me knows I don't know when to stop. So I'm still talking as I've tripped over this table during the story. I don't go, oh, cut, next tape. I just keep going as if I'm Katie Couric or something and we're live and we need to continue. <laughs> So my blooper reel is kind of amusing because I'm either making faces or I'm like bumping into something or I'm like, is my face shiny? You know, just really not being conscious that a camera's on. So that premieres and we do that for a little while and things are going really well and I'm managing a band. I eventually pick up another band and kind of move up in the tier and the band's name was My Own Sin. And the thing about My Own Sin that I think needs to be noted it was the first time that I had worked with a band that had already been through a couple of managers. I think I was manager number maybe three or four at that point, and they were all very talented. I just don't think that their previous managers, that style of music was for them. But this is also the other part of this is I'm a believer that you have to really enjoy the band's music to be passionate about managing them. Their singer had a unique voice. Their sound, even though it was a little dated to the times, what they were offering was really neat. It was resonating with an audience. It really was. They had a very large, burgeoning, young audience. Like we're talking 11, 12, 13, 14 year olds who are very devoted. They already had a fan club. They already had a street team. You know, they had done some cool things. And at that point, they had already gone through a couple managers. They had also had a really great production deal at the time. So they had done some things on their own. They had won some awards. They were really ambitious and really on their own to done some really great things. So it was a different kind of challenge for me is that I inherit this production deal and this production team that they're working with on recording a record but also an attorney that they were working with so that was different for me that was something that I had not done before and then eventually working with an attorney that had under his belt he sued Metallica and won like this guy had done some great things out of Los Angeles. My band needed a, a different attorney and typically bands reach out to their own attorneys. But I was like, hey, I found this guy through MySpace. He represents Hit the Lights and My Ruin, which at that time for heavier bands, those are heavy hitters in the business. And he's willing to represent you guys. So they sign on with them. We have our great working relationship and you go through the ups and downs of being in a band and managing a band out of Jacksonville where at that time female-led bands really was a thing but for some reason we just could not get past the label negotiation part but I look about it as like the things that they were able to do in that period of time it is commendable so yes 
I was doing a lot of different things. And also at the same time, I had a serious boyfriend. So I was like juggling all these different parts. And during that time, I'd also moved around a lot. I had lived in Jacksonville, moved to Orlando, moved to Austin, Texas at one point, didn't live there very long, but still managing this band. Like I kept all of my stuff. And this is before Zoom people. This is before the age that we are in today where everything's virtual. I was doing it then. So yeah, I had my hands in a bunch of stuff. And I would basically not say no to anything. Like if anybody approached me with a project, yeah, I'll do it. So around that time, I want to say sometime in 2006, I hook up with this label out of Idaho that needed an A&R rep for the South. They send me business cards. We go over a contract. I've got a deal. And they made a couple releases while I was with them, but none of them were bands that I had found. Actually, none of my bands I brought to the table, they signed. They didn't feel there was a market for it. They had pitched them to their investors and they were like, this isn't gonna work. So kind of to go back a little bit, in that time, I want to say like 2005, 2006, we were kind of cresting on the whole indie label thing. I mean, everyone was starting a small label or some sort of small distribution at that time. So yes, I was one of those people that put their hand in it too. I had met a couple scouts from big labels and nothing really materialized with that. I did go to a bunch of conventions. And I think one of the one that sticks out the most to me is I got to be on, and I still don't know how this happened either. I don't know how they found me or how we hooked up, but I'm glad they did because they were very kind to me. J-Rock and Patty were their names. They had a music show called Rock Solid Pressure based out of the Tampa area. And then they had a showcase and they would bring labels in. And they were like, would you like to be on our panel? And I had been asked to be on panels before, but it was not, so can you call somebody you know that's important other than you to be on a panel? It wouldn't be me they wanted on the panel. They wanted someone else. So if I could get them on the panel, but they were actually, would you mind being on our panel? It's like, sure, I'd love to do it. So I actually drove to Tampa and drove home all in one night, but was on this panel. There was a band out of Jacksonville that was there hanging out. So that was kind of nice to see friends of mine. That was an interesting experience. One of the things that I take from the Rock Solid Pressure Showcase was I'm sitting here, I met a really nice guy that ran a label out of Texas, it's like a death metal label. And then to my left was someone else, I think from a management company, but I was there specifically for the small label sworn in that I worked under. And their logo was, are you sworn in? <laughs> and I remember it was several hours of watching bands play and critiquing them and having a sheet and then the feedback is provided back to the bands. I remember two distinct moments from that night meeting a singer of a band. I believe they were called the Ray Gun Girls. I may be wrong. And I remember loving her. Like she had the persona, she had everything you needed, especially for that time, that female-led situation. She's gorgeous. She had these really beautiful eyes. They were like this caramel brown. Like she just had a really great look about her and a great personality. She was very sweet and she sought me out. She goes, I don't want to bother you, but here's my record. I don't want to bother you, but what did you think about my band? Like she was really in it and I thought that was really cool. So I was very impressed with her as a performer as well. From what I understand, she left the band shortly thereafter and I hope she did some great things because she really was a talented woman. But the other part that stuck out is I realized I didn't enjoy critiquing somebody's hard work in a manner that can maybe deflate them or maybe they go home and they take that to heart and not feel good. Because here you are working really hard 
you want to get signed, you want to get picked up. And at that time, you know, 2005, 2006, you thought that was it, was getting a label deal. So I didn't enjoy that. I never did another showcase as well. Ended my A&R career shortly thereafter. Band management is, it's not an easy thing. I think anybody that's done it will tell you that. With band management, there are highs and there are lows. A lot of times when you're working with an artist, if things go terribly wrong, they look to the right. You know, it's just very, very easy. And I'm not picking on any particular instance, but it's true, you know, band management, especially at certain levels, is kind of a thankless job. And it, it is a lot of work, but I learned so much from in my early 20s and reading contracts and seeing how attorneys deal with you and seeing how vendors deal with you, seeing how venues deal with you. Your job is obviously to develop the career of this artist and I am definitely a firm believer that you have to enjoy the music and you have to feel passionate about it for it to really work, for the relationship to really work. And I can honestly say, I think one of the cool things, at least from that early stint, is I'm still friends with both of those bands. Really good friends and we all keep in touch. And they've all gone on to do other things. So that was an interesting time. So probably in 2009, I'm doing really well at property management. I'm also in a serious relationship. And then my and breaks up. I believe this is in the fall. And I was like, okay, well, you know, we got to label negotiation a couple of times. The music scene in Jacksonville was also changing and I felt a little out of touch with it. So it's like, okay, maybe this is it. We've done all that we can do. I was not thinking the sky's the limit. I was like, well, I guess this is it. We're gonna just hang our hat and do normal life. And I did do normal life for years, for a really long, long time. But sometime with the change of the decade, I start to get an itch and it wasn't like a tickle. It was like a big itch that you can't scratch. And I go see Deftones play at Plush and it's hot and it's sweaty, but I have like a profound moment. The Deftones is a band I've always loved. I wore their t-shirt in my high school, 11th grade yearbook picture. I was a big fan of the Deftones and I've never missed them when they come to Jacksonville. So I went, I was like, I'm gonna go see the Deftones. I haven't seen a band play in forever. And at that time, I really was not in touch with, I was in touch, but not really hanging out with any of my music friends. And the television de show kind of had done a hiatus at that point. But I go see the Death Tims and I'm like, man, I'm really missing this kind of stuff. At the same time, simultaneously, Kim started doing open mics and really taking like seriously, who, who knew, you know, she had this like once in a lifetime, once in a million voice. But she's like, oh, come to here and check us out. I'm doing this or check this out, you know, and I'm realizing, holy crap, you can't just sing like you can really sing. So I'm doing that. She's introducing me to people and I'm kind of making new friends. And, and I even, you know, considered picking up the bass again and playing in a band. Like my instruments were just sitting there collecting dust. I think the real big like precipice or turning point past the hiatus, you would definitely say is this wonderful woman, Darcy, had this Beaches Blue Society. She wanted to do more things with and get it accredited with the Blues Foundation. And I'd always liked blues music, but never really considered working that heavily into it. And I think it just so happens, and it's another one of those things that my life is a series of falling into crap. <laughs> you know, like, I just happened to be in the room at the time. <laughs> I think that's the story of my life. I was just there. <laughs> and in this case, it really was, I was just there. <laughs> 
where we started talking and they're talking about forming a board over some really good shrimp and some really good food. I'm like, oh, I did A&R for a label. I used to manage a band. I didn't think anything of it, but people were like, oh, you'd be good on the board. I'm like, okay, sure. Again, I did not think it would materialize into what it became. So I joined this board. I started attending things like the Tuesday Night Blues Jam that had been going on for a while at that point. I start meeting people, start meeting other like-minded individuals again. And at that time, like I decided to be single because I was like, this is what I want to do. I do that. I'm living in Riverside, but then driving all the way to the beach for Tuesday Night Blues Jam, working on this blues society with the first board, getting the ball rolling, becoming accredited. And I think things started to pick up steam maybe a year later. And for the first time in eight years, I'm on television, on the chat, talking about the International Blues Competition. For anyone that doesn't know what that is, the IBC really is, it is like the Olympics of the blues. When I found out about it and really learned about it, like I'd heard of it, but never really paid mind to it. Because again, I come from that old school, that punk rock world, that heavy metal world. I'm on camera saying Pantera for life on that interview. My roots are never far behind me, but the, the blues is the root of American music. That was a great honor to be able to talk about our international competition, the first one being hosted in 25 years. So history is being made at that point, and that was really exciting. I believe we held it at Mojo Kitchen. The two bands that got to go up and represent Jacksonville, Toots Lorraine and Traffic, and then Kim and Sean's duet, they were in the semifinals. We don't send a band for 25 years and they're in the semifinals. To watch all the hard work that they put into their performance was wonderful. You knew you were a part of something really cool watching people work so hard, practice after practice after practice, and then the work we did into finding appropriate judges and making sure they were properly vetted. And my job to anybody who knows me is probably comical was to keep the time and to make sure that nobody went over their set. I did okay, there was a joke that we needed to have like a flavor flavor clock over my neck or something because I have a terrible habit of being late everywhere. <laughs> Kim had started with Caitlin McWilliams they, from the Cat McWilliams band, they had started something called Women Who Rock the Blues. And they had done one in 2015 and I had attended. And then in 2016, it came back around again. Kim and I have simultaneously always just, hey, can you help me out with this? Sure, can you help me out with this? You know, it's just the way it goes with, with the two of us. And we make a good team. She goes, you want to help with the press part of it? It's like, sure, and the Blues Society was sponsoring it at the time. And that was a fun story, because I think about it now, it's like, man, there's a lot of work that went into that as well. It was a great event in 2016. It was Betty Fox Band from Tampa, Florida. Mama Blue was also on the bill as well with Cat McWilliams Band, Kim Rotatis and the Black Cat Bones. And then the exiting house band was Smokestack, featuring the late and very, very great Denton Alkins. And we 
remember there was like a lot of work done in the beginning just in terms of the scholarship portion of it. So that was something new also as well. This is a non-for-profit. We're making sure the scholarship is ready to go and making sure we get the proceeds, but then the planning of the event, because it's also a ticketed event in a restaurant. And then making sure that we're taking care of this artist that we're welcoming in our house, Betty Fox, who was incredible that night. And I just remember getting there early, but still, truth be told, the band start late because of me not watching the time. And somebody said it was kind of like your wedding day. You don't remember anything that happened. Honestly, I can't recall much about that night. Like I remember talking to two people that whole night, but I remember there was a VIP package and there was just like some sort of mishap with the seat or something. So I'm having to redirect that making sure tickets are no duplicate tickets and making sure that people have accurate seating. So my job as stage manager, I remember now, and I was definitely doing it. It's like running around, also making sure people were fed because the artists had catering. So I was like, have you eaten? Okay, before you go on stage, do you need any tea? You know, just really, I am very mom-like, but definitely making sure that that kind of, the background stuff is taken care of as well. We also had a big amount of hospitality, so making sure people don't take off with our hospitality. We also had security because there, there wasn't a lot of parking, so making sure people redirect traffic and stuff and parking spaces. And somehow I was in charge of that. I also roped in some of my friends to volunteer for free to be like security. And they were not happy with me by the end of the night. And it ran so late that folks actually was like, should we go home? And I'm like, no, 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 no. And I think I didn't even know them at that point. Like we had just met and I'm like, don't go anywhere. And I had to like run and go up to the stage and let one of my friends know, you have to get off stage in three songs. Why have five? No, three, all now. Doing my thing or whatever. And it was kind of funny. But when it was all said and done, it was a great night. We gave away a scholarship to a very deserving singer named McKenna. She was so appreciative and we had this signed guitar we raffled off. We had this beautiful drawing or painting to commemorate Women Who Brought the Blues that was done by my friend Darcy. Just a lot of really great stuff. I somehow wound up on the stage presenting the scholarship to her. <laughs> presenting on behalf of Women Who Rock the Blues. The scholarship to her was a really great moment. And just to see how appreciative she was, I thought that was really cool. That's something also that's very important to me is I love serving. I did it in church, I did it as a kid, which is another part of my background as well. Yeah, music really is a gift. And if you're able to share it with people, that's even so much better. So that was, I think, a highlight for me is to seeing her face when she got that scholarship into getting a photo with her. That day that was really great. And the performances were awesome. At the end of it, there was kind of like this all-star jam where all four of these ladies that are headlining the sh doing the show are singing together. And it was really some beautiful, wonderful musical moments made. But I remember at the end of it just being like, whoa. Then when we do the moratorium and we really discuss how we do, you know, we sold it out, we packed the house and it was a great show. But that was a great honor for Caitlin and Kim to ask me to help them out with that. Probably one of my favorite shows that I've helped out with. I've done a couple events in my lifetime, but definitely that show was a good memory. 
So we're doing that, we're doing IBC. We go to Memphis and Memphis, if to anyone who's ever been there, that's an incredible musical city. I think also, I feel like it's almost one of our forgotten musical cities that when you think of musical cities, you think of Nashville, you think of Seattle. Memphis kind of gets left behind and to be able to go to Memphis and my mom lived in Memphis at the time. So I had a place to stay and she'd been living there for years at that point. And the first thing I did when I got off the plane is I love Elvis was she, she took me to Graceland like immediately and the house was closed for mold remediation. So I didn't get to go inside the house, but everything else, his exhibits, his cars and stuff and to go on the Lisa Marie plane, I was so happy. But participating in representing a blues society at the time of the IBC was really, really neat. And to see people from all over the world shine, it really is the Olympics, seeing Japanese blues bands, Swedish blues bands, blues artists out of Utah, out of California, out of Canada. The music being played in those bars. Rum Boogie, I want to say it was at Silky O'Sullivan's. A fun story about that is when we watched the set at Silky O'Sullivan's representing the First Coast Blues Society at the time, something happened with the XLR chord where it went out and the singer kept singing and didn't miss a beat and the performance was still really strong. That shows to the testament of professionalism. It was things like that I thought were really cool. I saw a really great duo. Turns out they were out of Gainesville. I think another great one for me also there is my friends Frank and Cindy. It was their honeymoon and they were representing Suncoast Blues Society. So they have this beautiful song called Half Moon Over Memphis that every time I hear it, it just hits me in the heart. And to be a part of that, you know, is their honeymoon period, they're performing at the IBC. Those are really wonderful memories. And it was so fun to come home and to come back and all of us kick our feet and just talk about the memories that were made. So that was really cool. That was my first IBC. I would go on to attend. I believe it was one more time. The vibe was a little bit different, but it's still great to see. And because I had already been before, it provided a different experience because I had knowledge behind me and I got to meet some of the board of the actual Blues Foundation. So it's really interact with them, attend meetings and attending these meetings and having these discussions were really cool. And to be sitting around other people who do what you do in other parts of the country. My title with Thought Society at the time was marketing director, you know, artist relations and artist relations still, if you go back to business management standpoint, is just really important to me. Artists have rights. Artists have a right to protect their intellectual property but also we have to take care of them and there are definitely lots of foundations like the music maker relief fund some other things that i think are really really cool working towards making sure like medical needs are met the heart fund i think is another great foundation which helps with medical needs of artists and there are a couple different foundations that do that the sweetheart relief fund is another one that does some really great things and i think having resources for musicians is really important whether they be health resources with physical health burial services there are some that I do offer with that. It's also mental health. Making music can be very draining and I can speak to that. Performing can be very draining. Your relationships in your life, they do change. Singers with their voice, I too have visited vocal coaches and whatnot. And I've done also some damage to my throat sometimes, not singing properly as well. I think that's one of those things that kind of gets missed. But with nonprofit, I did delve deeper into that and really did enjoy that. So I did, you know, nonprofit for a little while. And around 2018, I felt like I had given what I could. I've done what I was able to do. And I was like, okay, we're just going to try something else.
also at that point simultaneously through singing at Oak Harbor Baptist Church in Mayport, which is the church I was baptized in in 1989, where I had attended a Bible study, where I had sang in their choir. I began attending the church and the church congregation was really tiny. I'm talking there's maybe 20 or 30 of us. But by 2018, I had been singing in their choir. I had on occasion done a couple of programs as a lead vocalist, which to me still it just strikes my fancy because that was never the goal for me ever to be a vocalist of any kind, let alone being the solo at a Christmas pageant. That was never the goal. But somehow through singing in the choir, which I just did it for praise. I really did do it for praise and to accentuate my bass playing, which I had started to do back up now with being on the non-for-profit, but still petrified to play in front of people. Again, being jack of all trains, master of nine, still playing bass, jamming with my friends, watching my friends play, doing this nonprofit stuff and singing in the choir at my church. By the time 2018 hit the very beginning and I go to my last IBC, I had started to pick up work as a backup vocalist. I was doing it here or there and it was fun but it was becoming work. Like I was actually getting work and that was new. That's something I just never imagined doing. So I started doing that for a little while. So I was like, okay, why don't we focus on this for a little while? We're having a good time. And at the same time, this is becoming a little bit of a living for me. So I started doing that for a little while. Somehow wound up on stage at Springing the Blues with Mama Blues. She had asked me, she was, would you do backing vocals for me this year? And I was like, yeah, sure, no problem. And we had known each other for a little while. We had met through mutual friends and I'd always gotten along. So that was really sweet of her to ask me to do that. I never imagined that would ever happen. I still am like, for real, that's, you know, when we wanted to be on Headbangers Ball, that's not what we were thinking where we're going to end up. But there I was, this is a great, performance and I still continue you know to do background vocals here and there I really I think at that point was just really just going through life and finding my way and my sister dies in August of 2018 up until that point you don't imagine something like that happening to you and especially not me I, I can say I'm really lucky I had not experienced a bunch of you know, really terrible tragedies. I don't have a really horrible, like, childhood story. You know, I have none of that. I've been very, very lucky. And it's ironically enough, a little bit before she had died, I go see the Pixies play with you. And that's the last time I ever physically saw her. And she had taught me how to play Gigantic. And that's the last time I ever physically saw her was at that show. And that was like, bands that you check off the list is the pixies at least for me those bass lines it's very integral to what i know as a musician and i love those songs so that's a big deal to be able to see the pixies live big big deal and that's the last time i ever saw her and she ended up passing away about a month later that kind of threw me for a loop and was a shock in and of itself and one of the things that i take from that without getting too deep into the horrible initial minutia thoughts at that time, because it wasn't great, it was awful, and it's very shocking, is that a friend of mine, a really close friend of mine from high school, Tennille, who I've mentioned before, you know, she, she called me up, you know, this is gonna change your relationship with music. And I hadn't even thought of that yet, but already I'd like, for the first time in my life, I wouldn't listen to music for the first week. I didn't wanna hear it. 
I still remember driving to the car on silent for the first time ever in my life. I didn't listen to music. Anybody knows that has lost somebody close to them, there is a lot of business and a lot of paperwork that goes on when that happens. So you're taking care of that, taking care of the arrangements. So there almost was no time to think, you know, at that point in my life, but it definitely taught me who was really there for me and who really loved me. Also the hearts of the people I love and know. I had people reaching out to me from all corners, people I barely knew, coworkers, old friends. That was amazing and meant the world to me. One of the things that I think that definitely shouldn't be noted about her life is that she dedicated herself to teaching others about music as well. She volunteered at a girls rock camp she had done some really great things like teaching young girls guitar and helping with equipment in their shows. And I met a lot of people that had played in bands with her. I thought that was really, really great. It was a testament to her legacy. Her ceremony, which really was put together by the people at Birdies where she had worked for years and years and years. And there were tons of pictures of her playing guitar and that was not easy for me at all. But I'm glad that they did that. Just there were all sorts of wonderful photos of her on stage. And I think that anybody that loses somebody close to them, especially when you play music, it definitely changes your perspective. There's still to this day certain music that I'm like, I haven't brought myself to the point to listen to all the way through I'm exactly comfortable. And maybe that'll happen one day, but it's definitely not right now. It was really an honor. It was really cool to meet people who she had touched and to meet a community that she had touched, that she had made an impact on. And I still, to this day, meet people that adored her and was like, she was so cool. That was different for me as being the introvert to basically represent another person who's not on the planet anymore. And especially to have them resemble you. When people say that, they're like, wow, I feel, I'm like, I know, I look like her. And then they hear my voice and they're like, whoa. And I'm like, yes, I know. And when she was alive, people would meet me and go, do you guys know that you guys have the same voice and the same mannerisms? I'm like, Yep, we grew up in the same house. Yes. <laughs> we look like a grandma. Yes, I know. <laughs> but that was really different. So around that time, I just really, and anybody that's grieving knows, especially I think you lose a sibling or a younger sibling, that it's so different from any other kind of loss. So I didn't play music for like eight months. And as you know, I really didn't have an interest in it. It was just like going through the stages. I got pretty tickled that I could listen to a Wipers record without just becoming upset. I had a hard time connecting with the thing I loved the most for a while. And then around January, I started to come out again. That was the other thing. I didn't really see people. You know, people make comments to me. They were like, you're downright reclusive. I went to work, but going out and seeing people was really rough, but you were a great part of that. You were a friend throughout the process and you got me out of my house. <laughs> Let's go see this band play. Let's go do this, okay. You're like, why don't we practice with some other musicians and sing, okay. We put an ad out and you know, we met the guys and we did the Misty Notes for a little while and that was really fun. I think one of the cool things about Misty Notes is to be noted is the first time. I'm in a group of working musicians where we're all at the same level at the ground so I wasn't like hopping on to anybody else's deal. It was, I'm still doing backing vocals, but it's just all of us together jamming at David Krivitz's house in St. Augustine and having a great time. And his, his wife was so gracious about letting us use their home. And Scott was wonderful too. And Austin was a great guitar player. So that was really good fun. And we we're working on harmonies we we're doing our, and it felt like a really good release. So we did that for a little while as well. I do spring in the blues with Mama Blue. And we also do a chapel gig. 
and that was a lot of fun a lot of work went into that and that's probably one of my favorite gigs most definitely was the beaches chapel gig i remember the whole time being really really nervous and i also suffer from a good amount of stage fright but there was a lot of work that went into it we practiced like every day but i still have heard playbacks of those practices and i'm like whoa we did that the vocals were just really is, is good stuff that we had done during that time period so it's definitely a lot of fun and that kind of kicked around 2019 just kind of going also through transitions in my career you know i decided that the apartment business was not for me so i was trying to do other things and just navigating through life and in 2020 covid hit but before that, we fast forward again to, I hadn't talked to Mike Ireland in years. Um, we had seen each other in passing, but he had been doing other things. And he too went through a period, I think, where he was doing acoustic gigs, you know, doing cover stuff. And I have to say, he's a really talented guy. So he was kind of going back to school, just like I was going back to school. He's like, I'm in this new band. It's called Dustin Monk and the Hustle. Check us out. And I did check them out and I really liked what I heard, you know, and he wrote me, he's like, what do you think? I was like, it's really cool stuff, you know? So I checked them out, really enjoy it. It's like, what do you think about, we're at this level here where we've picked up a lot of steam, which they had done a lot of stuff really quick. Like I just remember at one point he's telling me this band's together and a couple months later, they're playing big gigs. They're doing a lot of work. And he says, what do you think about you coming by and maybe managing us or do you know anybody? And at first I said, no, uh-uh, I ain't doing that again, no. I, I'm pretty sure I reacted pretty strongly. I was like, mm-mm. I was singing in a wedding band and it wasn't really taking off like we had hoped. We were just having logistical issues with everybody living on different parts of the, the city. So I was like, all right, I'll think about it. So I thought about it, I chewed on it. I'm like, I'm willing to meet you guys and see what happens. And COVID hit, so it's a little while. It was like several weeks in, maybe months into the quarantine period time that we start talking. And what made me say yes was meeting all of them hearing their entire set at the practice and Destin had been on NBC's The Voice at that point so he had done things he had toured with We Still Dream which was a pop punk band that he had been with so I saw what I liked is I liked them as people they were all very welcoming they were all really cool and I was like I think this is something that I can definitely do so here we are now one of the things that really appealed to me about them is they had done their work their image their photos their branding so it wasn't for me a start from scratch where I've got to cut everything down. It was, this is a band that really was at that point where they needed a manager, where they were picking up so much work and really working hard. The work ethic is what I loved about them. It was definitely a really great situation for all of us. And we just got along so well. And I felt automatically invested. These are some talented folks. They're fun to work with, you know, so watching them develop and grow and managing a band during COVID has been interesting somehow in life you end up where you're supposed to be whether you choose it or not after everything that I've learned being able to apply that they're probably getting the best version of a manager that I have ever been but at the same time I feel really appreciated by them being a woman in Jacksonville more so when I was younger I think that I've been lucky and I don't know whether it's me per se, but at the same time, I think that you have to know your value as a person, as a manager, and that goes whether you're male or female. You need to know your value and know that you're worth. And there have been times where I have gotten challenges 
but I've had no problem telling somebody, you're not gonna talk to me that way. I will say there were other girls that were my age that were doing the same thing. Promotion team, managers of other bands that had been doing it as well. So that was kind of nice. We didn't all seem to run in the same circles. Like they were all doing their thing and I was over here on this island because a friend of mine told me, he's like, you kind of came out of nowhere. Like they already had been a group of girls kind of working the scene. And here comes this college student who's like, I'm just gonna do this and hang out with my friends and see what happens, which is really, <laughs> A lot of people, it's very calculated. They have a goal. I'm going to be a big time record producer. I'm going to be a big time rock star. I'm going to be a big time music manager. I definitely am an ambitious person. I've always known what kind of person I wanted to be and what I wanted to achieve. Now, going about it, definitely not the path or how to do it. Nah, it has been a lot of winging it. I have been so privileged to know some of the most talented people, and some of them are no longer on the planet. My sister was one of them, and I've known some really great vocalists, and Jacksonville has probably some of the best I've ever heard. Some of the best guitar players, some of the best writers I've ever heard, and that's another thing. Jacksonville has a lot of really great writers of original music. We've also got bands that can play you someone else's song like you would not believe. And I don't think our city gets enough credit for that. How talented our musicians are. And we should be right up there. We have so many different niches. Any genre of music that you enjoy, you can find a place and you can find running partners. For me personally, I love meeting other women that book bands, that love music. I'd rather go see a band play than be sitting at some restaurant with some drinks in front of a plate of appetizers. I would rather see a band play and I love all, all types of music, but that's our scene. Take risks. I had opportunities to move to New York. I had opportunities to stay in Austin, Texas. I think I'm exactly where I'm supposed to be, but I think I had a, a little bit of a, what if this happens? What if that happens? Too many variables. You have to know your worth. I think that if you know your worth and know your value, and that's gonna come at the table with negotiating a deal, that's gonna come at the table when you're rehearsing with other musicians. If you know your value and you know your worth, the door will never close. I hope to be like Tina Turner, still doing do, 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 rolling, you know, you know, to be 80 and still kicking it. Yeah, the challenge here on Beale Street is to keep your feet on the ground. Back home I was something but here a dime a dozen Trying to make that Memphis sound Yeah, the concrete's hard on Beale Street From some pretty big shoes to fill So as you're paying your dues You wear your walk-in shoes As you're climbing up that hill There's a half moon over Memphis And it's smiling in your eyes you dance with me for all the world to see under all these neon lights there's a half moon over memphis and if i had to choose between your love and elvis i'd lose my blue sweat shoes Well, it sure was nice visiting with you today. I hope you enjoyed our time together as much as I did. There are so many untold stories and wonderful storytellers out there, maybe even you. Storytelling is a lost art form, one we should be striving to preserve. Stories bring us closer together through shared experiences. Whether in joy or sadness, we all have something in common. We all have a story to tell. So if you or someone you know has a story that deserves to be told, contact me and I may just invite them on by. 
there's always plenty of room on my front porch.